Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're on the air. We are all sitting here in the talk studio, the GPB radio, political rewind talk studio. I'm having such a good time with these panelists that I wasn't even looking at the clock. I didn't even know we were on the air. So we are. Welcome to Political Rewind uh, today. It's very good to have everybody with us. Uh, Greg Bluestein, the AJC political reporter, is here. Wednesdays are the day he usually is able to come in and be on the show. Thank you for being here today, Mr. Bluestein. Glad to be here. Sitting next to Greg Bluestein is Governor Kemp's press secretary, Cody Hall, who is a busy guy right now, Cody. We had the Eggs and Issues breakfast, which the governor spoke at today, tomorrow's State of the State, and then the session is up and running. It's a very busy time, but it's a good time, so good. we're looking forward to it. Yeah, um, we're going to ask you to give us a complete preview of what the governor's going to say in his speech, uh, which he gives tomorrow, right? Happy to. Okay, good. Wendy Davis is here. Wendy is a city commissioner in the city of Rome. She is also one of the best social media people I know. Every time, Wendy, you announce you're going to be on this show, man, we get an awful lot of hits. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to be here. You're also, of course, a member of the Democratic National Committee. So at some point, I'm going to ask you, I hope, during the show to give us a few of your thoughts about what you thought about the debate last night, what you think... Is happening as we head to Iowa just two and a half weeks down the road. And Amir Faroki is uh, with us today. He, of course, is a an Atlanta City Councilman. It's been too long since you've been on the show, Amir, and I'm really glad to have you uh, back. Uh, so thanks for being here. It's good to be back, Bill. So let me start uh, very briefly. Greg Bluestein, within the last hour, the U.S. House has in fact voted <clears throat> to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. There is some formal doodadding that the speaker has to do this afternoon. But at 5 o'clock today, the impeachment managers, Adam Schiff uh, and Gerald Nadler being the lead impeachment managers, and the rest of the the team, there's seven of them all together, will literally walk the articles of impeachment over to the Senate chamber. And that will trigger the beginning of this trial. It will, and it will have really interesting ramifications for course, federal you know, presidential politics, but also Georgia politics. It'll be one of new Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler's first votes um, after the trial. And also, you know, of course, Doug Collins, the House member, has played a very important part in all this. And uh, I think we have a quote from him. Yeah. Can why you... don't we listen? Uh, the speaker uh, really tried to keep a short window for debate on the uh, resolution to transmit the articles. But there was still plenty of time for people to talk. And, of course, as the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, Doug Collins got to control the time for the minority party in the House on the debate today. Here's just a little of what he had to say. It is just said just a moment ago that the Speaker has been leading the fight for a fair trial in the Senate. I wish the Speaker had been leading for a fair hearing in the House instead of trashing our rules. It was a political impeachment. They have said he is impeached for life. This shows the true motivation, I believe, of the other side. It is their dislike for this president and the good work he is doing. 
Uh, Wendy, the, the article's uh, transmittal passed on a course, a completely partisan, along uh, partisan lines. Uh, well, you know, that should surprise no one. The, the process has uh, devolved to that. Yeah. Um, um, so, let, let me, Cody, I, obviously you're not going to get in the middle of the discussion about Kelly Leffler, your boss's choice to fill the Johnny Isaacson seat until the special election in November, and Doug Collins. Um, but So I'm not going to try to even put you in that position, <laughs> except to say it is certainly true that Doug Collins it continues to be, until now, because it's moving to the Senate, one of the most important voices for President Trump throughout the first part of the impeachment. And sure, but I, I think at the same time, the impeachment process is now entering a new stage um, where the folks in the Senate are going to have their say now. Um, but I do think that it's gone a little bit under the radar, all that now Senator Leffler has been able to do in her her well, few weeks in office. She's taken some important votes. She's gotten around the state. She's starting to introduce herself to the folks here in the state that you need to introduce yourself to do a statewide race. Um, she's going to have the money, the message, and the manpower to win a race. And uh, Greg, speaking of Leffler, I I was I I sent a note to you uh, and to Galloway yesterday. I happened to catch her on Channel Forty Six uh, the other day, and I thought, gee, I don't think I've seen her on other local news stations. But apparently she has been doing interviews with all the, the TV stations here, which is a step in the right direction for her. Yeah, she's really embarked on this uh, statewide rollout tour, and it's been condensed, right? She, she wasn't appointed until till early last month. She took office last Monday. So we're talking about just a few days in office. But she went to West Georgia. She went to South Georgia. She recently went to Savannah. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the travels were right around the holiday times. Um, but she's, she started sitting down with some local reporters and, and really, as Cody mentioned, some of the local activists who are the backbones of, of, of the county parties in each of these places. Yeah, well, we have an invitation out there. We'll, we'll renew it to try to get her in here. Uh, um, Amir, let me go back to the impeachment vote, if I may. Um, what, what, what is your expectation of how this plays in the state of Georgia, a state that is, has been red, trending purple? Do you, first of all, do you think that people are going to be paying a lot of attention as this trial unfolds? The viewing numbers for the first part, the Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee hearings, were kind of tepid. But now we have a trial of a sitting president. Yeah, I, don't, I think Georgians, much like Americans, uh, expect this to fall, as Wendy uh, noted earlier, on, on partisan lines. And there's very little suspense uh, for most Americans on this issue. Uh, I, I think um, there will likely be some fatigue on the part of the average person from getting bombarded with impeachment trial pro uh, proceedings. Uh, and I think everyone's looking forward to uh, kind of getting to November and, and voting uh, this president up or down. All right. I want to just make a program, brief program note. The Mitch McConnell, the ma majority leader in the Senate, will, of course, have the option of setting a schedule in any way that he wants to for the trial. But we, we believe that the actual trial will start next Tuesday, that they will meet in sessions starting somewhere late morning until early evening, every day of the week. That means that, of course, GPB Radio is going to carry the NPR coverage, live coverage, and, and that means that we won't be on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So here's what we're going to do. On Monday, we have a special MLK edition of the show that I'll tell you about a little bit, a little more about later in the week. Starting Tuesday, we're going to be on live at 9 in the morning, and we will do our shows at 9 in the morning 
uh, throughout the impeachment trial. Okay, just we'll remind you that uh, as the week goes on. All right, Greg Bluestein, um, eggs and issues breakfast this morning. Uh, Cody, you were there. I was. Okay, bright and early. Okay, so first, let me start with you on this, Greg. Tell everybody what the eggs and issues breakfast is, what kind of tradition it's been, and and why it kind of matters to all of us. Yeah, it does matter. It's an annual sort of a kickoff to legislative session. You could call it the calm before the storm, but the storm already began. <laughs> it's usually, you know, the first or uh, second or third day of the legislative session. Um, so today it happened to be the third. Um, and it's, a, it's literally 2,000 plus people, 2,600 people or so were packed into this giant ballroom at the Georgia World Congress Center. Um, hundred, uh, hundreds of lawmakers, local officials, business leaders, chamber of commerce types, just from both parties, pack into this room and listen to the state's leaders kind of give their uh, updates on what they've been doing and their prognosis for what's to come. So we heard today from Governor Kemp, from Speaker Ralston, from Lieutenant Governor Duncan, and from Senator Perdue, among others. Okay. Um, Cody, what were the th- issues that your boss rolled out today that um, we, I assume, will hear more about in the speech tomorrow? Because these are short uh, speeches. They're, they don't talk right. for more than 10 minutes, I right. think. And I think there are a couple things. Number one, I think it, it was important for us that, look, we accomplished so much in our first year in office that um, I think the governor and our staff wanted to, to kind of reemphasize some of those priorities um, to the folks that were there in the audience namely human trafficking. Um, it's something that the governor and the first lady are very passionate about. And, you know, for us to continue to raise awareness about the issue, we need buy-in from all industry sectors in our state, including the chambers of commerce, because they're in every county, they're in every community. And to get them to buy into that issue would be really important. And I think the governor conveyed that message today. Um, but there were a couple of previews on foster care um, that we're going to continue to work hard to ensure that economic development is in all corners of our state. Um, and then also touched on, well, some of the gang issues and legislation we're going to be pursuing this session. So Amir, sex trafficking is certainly a major concern in the city of Atlanta because this has been a center for uh, trafficking. Uh, the governor, Marty Kemp, both both with Ivanka Trump yesterday when she visited a couple of shelters where people who were victims of sex trafficking have been given safe haven. Um Talk about how important this is to the city of Atlanta. Yeah, well, first I want to commend Governor Kemp and the First Lady for making this an issue. It's one of those issues that, you know, most Georgians' day-to-day lives, it flies beneath the radar. But for a safe and just society, this is really important that we address. And so uh, kudos to the governor for doing so. Uh, and for the city of Atlanta, look, I mean, we're a, we're a nexus, a transportation hub. Uh, and so folks move in and out. Uh, of Atlanta with great ease. That's part of our economic might, but it also comes with some negative externalities, this being one of them. Uh, and I think there's two issues to, to um, make note of. One is, uh, while there are um, plenty of uh, women from abroad who are trafficked uh, in sex trafficking, this is also a very much a local issue. Um, 91% of uh, domestic minor sex traffickers have, have been poached from from school. So it's it's local uh, girls and women who get sucked into it. Oftentimes, the second point, that they're the most vulnerable, right? They're uh, kind of uh, either tied up in, in kind of drug addiction or uh, homeless LGBTQ youth. There's a, there's a lot of vulnerable populations. So I, I would encourage the governor uh, as we step forward not to just focus on the penalties and enforcement, but um, to look at programming for the most vulnerable folks mm. um, so that we're, we're preventing victims from becoming victims. But Wendy, when I heard Amir, the, the, here's the words that really hit me hard. 
local girls in schools yes. poached yes. from their schools. Yes. He's right the way he framed it. I usually think of sex trafficking as being uh, foreign-born yeah. uh, immigrants who yeah. are preyed upon, but what he just said is really kind of chilling. Well, and and and, and you really don't—if you want to be chilled, hear more about it, right, because mm-hmm. it is frightening. Um, we have a wonderful group called End Slavery Georgia that's working in Rome that's been established for three years— um, and they took the model from Tennessee. Uh, and I know they'd love for the, the governor and his wife to, to come up and see what we're doing yeah. there and, and see what resources. Right now they've done it all um, with private resources. But I was asking him to, to tell me what they're doing, what they're, you know, I, I, the word rescuing feels dramatic. But taking women who have been um, victims of sex trafficking and trying to help them rebuild their lives. And why would you come to Rome? Well, it feels a lot safer than some mm-hmm. other places they've been, mm-hmm. right? And so um, they're they're working really hard. And I, I was like, give me a give me a story. And I wish I hadn't asked, um, but, right? Yeah. Um, you know, of uh, this happens to be one uh, woman who was foreign born and and trafficked to here, and then passed around someplace else here, and ended up in a in a church like in the Midwest. I forget what state he said. And the head guy at the church was trafficking children. I mean, it, it, it's it's horrifying. And so many of these young women are taken at at 12 and 13 and 14. And, you know, the stories they hear about, you know, um, and Amir's right, a lot of times it is people who have been runaways or who are homeless or in end up there, right? Like in ways like we think of the movies we've seen on TV. Um, but when they make this mistake of connecting with somebody who lures them, giving them the love they have been missing, right, and drags them into this, they keep them in there, not necessarily in shackles, but a lot of times it is in shackles. But by saying, if you tell anybody, I'm going to get your little sister, yeah, yeah. right, or I'm going to kill your mom. And, uh, and, it, and it's horrifying. It really is horrifying. And it's everywhere. And not only do we need to be finding... Um, programs and wonderful people like my friends at Enslavery Georgia who will help these women re, re, retake their lives. But we need to start making people understand that this isn't a victimless crime. This isn't like what you see saw, you know, if you see a show about Vegas and prostitution being legal there and it's grown women making that choice. That's not what all this is. Yeah. And the perpetrators are the both the men trading these women, but the men who were buying the yeah. sex. Yeah. Cody, you wanted to react yeah, to all I, that. Those were two great points. And, and it's kind of a, a three-legged stool. Um, and that's why the First Lady created the Grace Commission. First, you have to educate. The average age of someone who is trapped in human trafficking is 14. Um, and you have to educate folks on not only what the facts are, but what to look for t- to try to stop it. Number two is you there are ways that we can put some more teeth in the law to make sure that the folks that are either selling the women or buying them, um, that we hold those folks accountable. But number three, and I think it, it's one of the things I'm most excited for us to tackle this year, is a lot of these women, they are rescued at some point in time, um, but then they're given no options on how to reenter the workforce. They're given no options, a safe place to live. So they immediately feel their only option is to go back into the industry. So 
those are the three kind of things that we're going to be looking at with the Grace Commission. So are you going to have a legislative package that will emerge at some point rather soon? Yes. So, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems like a no-brainer for the – I mean, it's not as if you're going to have a lobby down there pushing back against regulations on on this, I assume, (laughs) or is there? Yeah, I mean, look, as you heard from Wendy, it's really hard for Democrats to push back against this. But there are some concerns, right? Um, uh, Not maybe as much with the sex trafficking but as the anti-gang crackdowns, that the problem is being overstated stated by the governor and his allies is that of a, gang but violence. That's, okay, that's separate, That's separate. Right? Okay. But also, in general, overall, um, there is always the option when you're dealing with this piece of code section that things can get tacked onto it. Yeah. And I think that's the that's – the, with all this seemingly uncon, uh, innocuous, uncontentious legislation, there's that, that possibility that um, – Unfriendly or, or or more, I shouldn't say unfriendly. More controversial provisions. You uh, you've you've taken us in a direction I was going to ask you about okay. next. Look, sex trafficking. It's going to be interesting to see how much opposition there is to passing something to protect young girls. Okay, but but Cody mentioned, and we know this anyway, that the governor's going to try to do something about to bring up you know into the twenty first century the foster care system to make changes. That too. Sounds so innocuous. It sounds so meaningful. Get more foster care kids placed in homes. Do it in a better way. And yet, it could turn out to be one of those issues that, once again, becomes really controversial. Why? And we've been down this road before. Yeah. Because in 2017, um, <laughs> there was an attempt to put a provision on similar legislation that, that overhauled the adoption system to make it harder for same-sex couples to to, to, to adopt children from certain uh, adoption agencies. Um and so there's a chance that this, these types of provisions can come back. There was a truce sort of formed um, in 2018 when there was an overhaul of that that Governor Deal signed into law um, where that provision was taken out and created as separate legislation that never passed. Um, but still, anytime you're dealing with this code section, anytime you're dealing with these issues, um, and it's not just same-sex you know, LGBTQ issues, there could be anti-illegal immigration Provisions. There could be all sort, all manner of, of 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 provisions that get tacked onto this. So uh, until it is it is signed by the governor, um, you know, no no piece of legislation is immune uh, to these sorts of uh, additions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things, Amir, that I, I I think I'd be a pretty safe bet to say the governor is not going to address uh, is uh, the fact that once again this year we're going to see an effort uh, by some legislators to get some momentum around a state takeover of Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson Airport. I I think the governor is not, I think it's fair to say he's not in that camp right now. He's not looking to be a part of that crowd right now. But but Cody, it comes up every year in the last few years, and it's going to, I mean, I'm sorry, Amir, it's going to come up again uh, this year for certain. Let's talk for just a minute about the fact that Mayor Bottoms, one of the ways she hopes to head this off is by having... Uh, uh, issued an executive order creating the office of an inspector general to oversee misconduct, corruption, that sort of thing. There's another thing. Sounds very innocuous on the surface. It might be a good way to fend off some of the concerns about a state takeover. But you and the council, and this is not an uncontroversial decision on her part. Well, first, again, let me. Uh, this is a, a, a rare hour. I'm committing the governor a lot of things, but uh, committing the governor for we'll take. See what happens uh, when Cody shows up. <laughs> for uh, being in the camp of of not being focused on taking over, trying to take over the Atlanta airport. I think the governor and and most um, kind of level headed 
Georgians realize, you know, our, our airport is one of the best run in the world, if not the best run, and it has driven our economy uh, all under city control and um, can continue to do so. Uh, you know, the uh, mayor's executive order is um, in in parallel to uh, the council working You've on establishing. You've been working on this for quite some time, right, and trying to decide how to handle investigations of of uh, contracts and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I, I, yes, council, the, the royal council, but there, I have a couple uh, colleagues, notably council member Jennifer Ride, who's really been spearheading this. Yeah, that's what I meant, the um, council, yeah. not you, you plural. But yeah, yeah so the, we have legislation that was been introduced that we're working through committee to figure out best how to structure the IG vis-a-vis uh, -vis the existing ethics and audit offices. Um, uh, the mayor has her view on how that structure should look like, which is what the executive order laid out. Uh, and I think the, there'll be a collaborative effort to, to establish an IG's office pretty soon because no one at City Hall, um, whether city council or the, the mayor's side, um, doesn't think it's a good idea. All right, part of the issue here is the question as to whether the city code allows the mayor to issue an executive order that creates some new structure. The, my understanding is the code w allows for a mayor to issue an executive order kind of as a temporary measure, right? So I, my understanding is the executive order is not establishing an IG. I think that still falls in the purview of the legislative process, and the council is going to do that through committees and a full vote. So oh, okay. and that's how council is viewing it. Yeah, I'm not sure the mayor is on the same page on that, Greg. <laughs> you know, it's just what's really interesting to me as the session opens is her presence at the Capitol. She, she was at the Capitol yesterday at the Georgia House. This morning for the Eggs and Issues breakfast, she was front and center. Um, you could you, House Speaker David Ralston uh, mentioned her, uh, as did uh, Senator Perdue, talking about her and the governor being the, the custodians of Georgia's economic climate. So she's she's coming out strong early on uh, to make her presence known among Georgia Georgia lawmakers uh, because this it's not exactly the surprise issue, but this could certainly uh, kind of blow up as yeah. the session goes yeah. on. Wendy, well, one of the reasons I thought it was interesting beyond just people who are in Atlanta is that. This notion of issuing executive orders, you know, Barack Obama, as when he was president, he took advantage of, you know, expanding the power of executive orders because he had a recalcitrant Congress. President Trump, it always wants to outdo President Obama, and so he's issued executive orders left and right. It feels like there's this, you know, creeping executive power being established uh, across governments uh, right now. Um, true. <laughs> you're, you're right about that. Uh, I guess that that makes me um, be um, maybe glad. I don't know if that's the right word, that uh, my city government is a city manager-led government instead of a strong mayor uh, government, so I don't have to, to wrestle with that concern, if you will. But, I mean, there's always been, in one way or another, when you have an executive and a legislative that are separate. I mean, there's there's going to be push and pull between, you know, who's in charge. And and I'm very confident that my friends down in Atlanta will, you know, work through whatever subtle differences there are and, and make sure that the airport is – it is well managed, uh, but that we continue to have assurances that that management is going to go well. And let me say, too, the bigger issue for me and for my colleagues uh, across the, the state who are – working hard to make their cities thrive is the legislature preempting so many things that we think are local control issues. And so uh, the Legislative Policy Commission of the Georgia uh, Municipal Associ 
Association. Wow. Um, we are, you know, perk, our ears are perked up. Our lobbyists are making sure that the preemption in terms of the airport, as well as a lot of other issues, uh, uh, well, they're going to gain legs, but that we're there to fight and make sure that local control is, the, uh, that the legislators understand our role. Cody, before I uh, take our first break, the governor has not signaled that he wants to champion a state takeover of the airport. Correct. So, his position remains the same from last year. Yeah. And what he said then was, look, um, this is obviously a very contentious legislative issue. I think it took on three or four different versions yeah. being hooked on other bills, being amended. And his his point was, look, this gives the mayor time and, and the council time to take a look at their operations and, and see if there are things that need to be fixed and take that year. And I think that's what they're doing. Greg, what we're hearing more is the possibility not of a complete takeover, but maybe the establishment of an oversight committee of sorts, like MARTOC has overseeing operations of MARTA, but not actually running MARTA. Yeah, I mean, but more oversight can be viewed as a takeover period. Yeah, okay, I hear you. This is an interesting uh, position for the governor to be in, too, real quick, because he did say last year, be thankful as Georgians that nothing actually happened with the takeover. So he, he came out after the session critical of the takeover bill. But remember, too, some of the Senate's most influential lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, some of his top allies are the ones pushing this. So Yeah. All right. We're going to watch how that unfolds. Before we do take our break, Greg, did you hear anything from David Perdue today that uh, perked up your ears at all? Clearly, he's running for re-election. He's fully engaged in the election campaign right now. Did he give a, a, a re-election speech? He gave his typical stump speech, but he highlighted bipartisanship more than, than he otherwise would at a, at a campaign rally. He, as I mentioned, he talked about Mayor Bottoms. He also talked about David Scott, the Democratic congressman, as one of his most important partners. And he kind of lamented how career politicians, in his words, in Washington are the reason why no one can compromise. You know, Wendy, we've talked about that on this show before because Purdue has been talking about bipartisanship on the campaign trail. It is ironic that one of the president's fiercest defenders and one of those who has expressed so much disdain for the way Democrats have treated him is the one who's championing bipartisanship in his reelection bid. Yes. I, I, ironic. Uh, sometimes what you say isn't what you practice. All right. So. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show in and uh, we'll do that now. When we come back, we've got more to talk about in terms of state issues and uh, we'll uh, look at a variety of other things as well. This is Political Rewind. Uh, we're back on Political Rewind. Amir Faroki. Uh, Wendy Davis, Cody Hall, Greg Bluestein, all with me in the Political Rewind studio today. Greg, uh, during the break, you uh, reminded me that we did, I talked about executive orders with everybody here, and you uh, pointed out that this morning, a federal judge uh, overturned an important an executive order, made an important ruling on an executive order of President Trump's. Yeah, Maryland federal judge said that state and local officials cannot block refugee emissions in their jurisdictions. She found that a Trump administration, he found that a Trump administration's uh, policy uh, about that is unlawful and does not appear to serve the overall public interest. And this policy, of course, is basically set a deadline of next week for states and cities to give consent to allow um, these. We're talking about legal 
uh, refugee immigrants into the state's uh, borders. And uh, Governor Campos, Georgia is one of the few states that have not yet taken a stance. About 42 states have said yes. One state, Texas, had said no to it. And then the rest of the states were kind of... Of course, what's interesting about that is the the federal government has, the Trump administration has lowered the number of of refugees it's going to allow in the country. They're down to like 18,000. So it isn't as if there's going to be a huge influx. Cody, are we expecting... To hear your governor, our governor, your boss, uh, have a statement about this, he's got to do it in the next week. Right. So we have been in in contact with our federal partners because I think there were certain aspects of um, the executive order that we had questions on and that we were trying to work through. Um, I have not talked to our legal team after um, the injunction by the judge, so I'm going to have to hold off until I at least talk to them to see how this affects how we're – pursuing those conversations with the feds. Yeah, I mean, Greg, it seems to me that this ruling, which will certainly be appealed, may make it moot for the time being. But as a political statement, the president has put governors like Governor Kemp and some mayors on the spot to declare how they feel about having refugees. And not to mention the refugee resettlement agencies that rely on federal funding for part of the resettlement. So they're all kind of up in the air. And, uh, you know, councilman can can talk about this too, but Atlanta was one of the first um, cities to say that it was accepting. I was about, yeah, I wanted to turn to you on that because um, Mayor Bottoms very quickly said, yes, of course, we want to accept refugees in Atlanta. Yeah, and Mary Bottoms uh, should get a lot of credit for that. She's led and making sure Atlanta remains a welcoming city, and we should all be proud of that. Um, you know, I, I think this goes to a bigger um, national conversation where we need to probably to recognize, and even in Georgia, we need to recognize that uh, you know accepting refugees is part of our national DNA. It's part of how the country has grown and evolved over time. Refugees contribute to our economy uh, in remarkable ways, many of whom become entrepreneurs. Uh, and this is a value add to our state. Wendy, what's going on up in Rome with this issue? Well, you know, it has, hasn't really reached Rome, but uh, but it is something that is a, a very strong conversation nationally, um, particularly among, among the mayors in larger cities. And, and again, wanting the mayors to be able to have continue to have the right to make determinations about their cities. Do you have much of a refugee population in Rome? Or or are you saying that it hasn't reached you, meaning there isn't much of a refugee community there? I'm not aware of a large refugee community in Rome. All right. Um, So we're going to watch how that unfolds. Thanks for uh, reminding us about that, Greg Bluestein. You want to talk about presidential politics for a little while, just for the fun of it? Wendy, I want to start with you on this. Um, Because you are a member of the Democratic National Committee, I don't recall. I don't think you've endorsed. Have you endorsed a oh, candidate? No, no, I haven't. I'm trying studiously to remain neutral. And um, and um, keep in mind, too, the DNC rules were changed. So uh, folks in a position like mine who are automatic delegates to the convention don't get to vote in the first round. That's and right. typically we only have one round. I have a, a bit of a concern. I was somebody who opposed that. I thought there were better ways to achieve what they were trying to achieve because I was scared what unfortunately I see creeping toward us might happen, which is that we would have extra rounds of voting. We may not have a nominee determined before we get to the convention because we have so many leading candidates who are so closely bunched up. There's not a clear sort of one-two. All right. So I want to, again, I'm going to let you start the conversation on this one. Of course, the debate in Des Moines last night, the final debate before Iowans will go to their caucuses on Monday night, August 3rd, it, I mean, uh, Jan- uh, February 3rd, is um, 
there weren't a lot of highlights, many people felt. And so the media picked up on, as we pesky media people do, (laughs) this feud between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders over whether or not he told her in a private conversation that he did not think a woman could be president of the United States. Why don't we listen first to what Bernie Sanders said when asked about that? CNN reported yesterday that, and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Uh, Anybody knows me, knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. There's a video of of me 30 years ago talking about how a woman could become president of the United States. And... Bernie Sanders responded, I mean, Elizabeth Warren responded to Bernie Sanders with this. But look, this question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, And I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. person on this stage who has beaten an incumbent Republican any time in the past 30 years is me. So, by the way, Wendy, I thought when Elizabeth Warren referred to her and Amy Klobuchar, I almost felt kind of an ache in my heart for poor Amy Klobuchar because it was like, oh, my goodness, I'm getting some attention here. Um, But uh, are we really in 2020? still debating whether a woman can be elected president of the United States. Sadly, we are. And sadly, um, I'm not really worried about the he said, she said of the conversation they had. It's a trivial argument in many ways. To my core concerned that so many Democrats in particular are sitting around speculating whether a woman should be our nominee because so-and-so may not, this demographic may not, that demographic may not, be willing to elect a woman president. And it is unfortunately, uh, yes, a, a, a conversation that is happening all across this country. And I it, it hurts my heart. And I wish uh, that the big, strong statement that Sanders made would penetrate out to all kinds of voters left, right and center. And that I wished that I think she made a very strong argument about the strength that women have had, particularly in the Democratic Party. I think she, you know, obviously she's right about her the success she and Senator Klobuchar had about the success of the House being taken back last year, primarily on the strength of our strong women candidates. And very importantly, she also talked about women voters. And we have talked previously on this show about uh, as a party, African-American women 
really in so many ways are the heart and soul of our constituency and uh, make, sh- make our party work and thrive and successful. So, uh, Greg, you're welcome to comment on that itself. But also the other thing is whether you agree with my characterization that this Warren, this Warren Sanders fight is really fodder for the media but isn't terribly important. If, if th- th- What is more important is the fact th- that, that Warren is suggesting that, that there are still doubts about whether a woman, woman can be president. Yeah, and I think to some degree, I mean, I agree with Wendy, um, there will be doubts um, from some folks until it happens, right? Just like there were doubts about, about Obama. Uh, first black president, first Catholic president, um, you know, and in the future, um, all sorts of other firsts until it happens. Um, what, what I did like about the debate when it comes to this, by the way, was that the debate started with such substantive issues about the Iranian mil- military strike and about trade, and uh, and then then you know you knew that it was going to turn to this what what you mentioned was kind of a trivial, he said she said fight that no one can really prove is right or wrong, um, and you knew it turned to that, but it didn't turn to it until like forty five or fifty minutes in. So we got some doing the prime time viewing. We got some um, substantive policy issues out of the way first. Uh, by the way. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver is listening to the show right now. She just sent us an email saying that this decision, the ruling by the federal judge, has already been enjoined. And so, uh, as we thought for the time being, it is in place. Governor Kemp's not going to be off the hook for the time (laughs) being, Cody Hall. (laughs) Amir, weigh in on this. You've You've got a woman mayor in the city of Atlanta. Brian Kemp has picked a woman to uh, be his candidate for Senate in the year ahead, uh, and yet we still debate whether a woman can be president of the United States. Yeah, all that's great, but it's not good enough. I was really disheartened and um, a bit aghast today when Speaker Ralston uh, decided um, he was not in favor of pursuing the Equal Rights Amendment at the state legislature, uh, and he he was quoted as saying, quote, women have done well enough, uh, and I, I found that um, just particularly off-putting, I, I, to say the least. You know, women in Georgia make 81 cents to the dollar for uh, for a man. Uh, we don't have they don't have bodily autonomy to make certain health decisions. Underrepresented in, in the board and the C-suite and the legislature. Systemic gender bias in the workplace. And so I, you know, when I heard that, I thought, well, well enough is not good enough, and we need to start acting like it's 2020 and not 1920. And so I, I think this issue of um, whether a woman can be president is. Uh, part and parcel of a bigger uh, national conversation that we have to continue to have both at the local and state level. Um, the, the headway that women have made into politics is great, but it's not where it should be. The uh, the ERA question is a little bit more complicated simply because the deadline expired quite a long time ago. There are questions as, well, Wendy, you're already kind of looking like you want to jump in, but there are questions about whether states fail to ratify by the deadline that was set by the congressional action on this. There are those who say, well, there's all sorts of loopholes that we can employ. And there are some states that have now decided they are going to renew. How many states short are we at this point? It's I mean, it was just, just one. one yeah. and, right? and they're making progress right. in Virginia. Yeah. So, right. um, But but I But the a, question is, even if they pass it there, whether it counts since the deadline expired. Sure. And, and I'm sure there are lots <laughs> of attorneys who can jump in on that. But I am just horrified to to hear that. That's how leaders of our our state feel about something that is is should be so basic and so obvious. And let's just get it done and move on yeah. in and 2020. Nonpartisan. And nonpartisan. Right. It's it it 
It's disheartening. Uh, An interesting quote last night, I was trying to carefully listen to the pundits, some of the pundits afterwards, uh, you know, to make sure my insights about like who won, who lost, all that kind of uh, pundit jazz. Like if we're supposed to be pundits sitting here, I'm not good at that. So I'm trying to learn a little bit. But a quote that really kind of stopped me up, uh, uh, Van Jones said, uh, talking about the debate and how hard people expected Warren to possibly go more hard at Bernie. And he said, women get punished if they play hardball all the way. Right. And it's just, I mean, it's, you know, we worry about, we have to worry about our hair. Do we, you know, how many people were talking about Mayor Pete's hair? I used to have to worry about my hair. You know, and then, I mean, and and part of it is realities and part of it is I wish we could, we we could move past, but, but it's, it's true. A lot of times a, a, a man can like knock you down like Trump. He's wildly violent with his rhetoric right and i uh, if a woman uttered anywhere near the kind of language he uses and the kind of vitriol he uses they would they're they're castigated all right i started all this by talking about the debate last night and iowa looming so let me go back uh, to that uh, uh, if i can cody what is a republican as you watch uh, the uh, the democratic field uh, shaping up, we we really have four contenders pretty well bunched near the top of the field. I'm just, and or if you watch the debate at all last night or one of the recent debates, how, how do you view these things? Well, I don't think Elizabeth Warren has been watching Georgia politics for the last couple of years because if she had, she would have known that whenever you go into a meeting, a private meeting with your opponent, you got to record those things. <laughs> um, but I will say that, you know, I thought last night's debate was kind of boring. But um, I think that benefits Joe Biden. He kind of seems to me like the Mitt Romney in 2012, that he never really had a great debate. He never really had a standout moment, but he just kind of kept going. Um, and, and that's kind of what it seems like to me. He's kind of skating above the fray, isn't he? Right. Um, he's avoided direct text. There really wasn't, for all the talk about uh, the, you know, the fight between Warren and, and Sanders, there really weren't that many scathing attacks. There weren't that many much clashing that I saw, at least. I, they, yeah. they, they, they de-escalated a lot. And I think part of that, too, is, frankly, it's Warren, and, Warren and Sanders are longtime friends. and They've been friendly with each other this entire campaign up until now. So it's hard to kind of just flip that switch. Well, and it's and it's the, what makes it boring, right? Uh, a more in-depth discussion about important issues, <laughs> yawn, right? But and that's that. That's not what the the. the yeah, mirror, it's a perennial problem, right? Isn't it? You know, with politics. But <laughs> but it but it's important, and and also too, we could dig into the weeds about how um, the Iowa caucus is. You know, the whole weird process there. You know, colors that anybody who doesn't get fifteen percent of the people who show up in a particular precinct on caucus night, they get nothing. Right. And that I'm glad you're mentioning that because that's what I wanted to talk about briefly, Amir. Um, People. uh, So the Iowans caucus, as I said, on Monday night, February 3rd, they go into their local community gathering places. In some cases, it's homes. In other cases, it's rec centers, gyms in schools, whatever. Um, And they do literally they have a time to everybody who's representing a candidate has a chance to give a speech about that candidate. And then they literally go to a corner of the room where their candidate is represented. And they count, right? If you don't have 15%, then people are allowed to move to another corner of the room, to another candidate. And that's why, despite the fact that uh, the polls 
uh, the Monmouth poll shows Biden at 24 percent, Sanders at 18, Buttigieg at 17, Warren at 15. The registered poll, the Des Moines register poll has Sanders in the lead. But in many cases, uh, what we're really looking at is who's second, because those are the people who might determine where the delegates fall. Right. And I think the latest Des Moines register uh, poll, which is highly regarded, had Warren as kind of every, the most common second choice amongst Iowa caucus goers. Uh, it'll be. I, I think it's it's fascinating for the rest of the country because it seems like a an antiquated, almost high school election type of way to do to do an election. But uh, it, it's also a bit endearing because it's it's, it's civic engagement at its finest. Mm-hmm. I mean, you turn up uh, like you might have turned up 150 years ago to to voice your opinion. Um, now, I think Democrats and others are right to criticize whether Iowa should be the first state uh, based on lack of um, uh, heterogeneity. But uh, it, it's going to be interesting to watch. And I, I think, you know, Cody indicated that there's, a, there's kind of a top four and that will likely play out that way. And we'll we'll see a close uh, a close bunching And about that. We always debate whether endorsements matter. But in places like Iowa with the caucus, when you're in that gym and your high school teacher is up there endorsing <laughs> Pete Buttigieg or your best friend is just talking about how great Joe Biden is, it really does matter there. Well, yeah. And I don't know if, if y'all have, have worked a caucus. I have in, in 2008. Right? I've I, covered I, them. I, I've been there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I was one of the staffers for Governor Richardson. And, and so my caucus experience is, is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and 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 I could bore you enormously three feet about of snow uphill. Uh, yeah. You know, actually, no snow. And the hilarious thing oh, is, wow. one of the campaigns bought all the snow shovels, so everybody wouldn't be able to buy snow shovels. And then there was no snow. So <laughs> laugh about that. But sixty percent. That same poll showed that sixty percent are still undecided. And even the people who are decided aren't firm. Right. This race is in flux, and we've spent millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of everything to woo these less than 250,000 caucus goers to determine 41 delegates. Greg, are you heading back to Iowa? I am. I I'm, figured you would I'm be. I'm going in a couple of weeks for the for the weekend and catching up with Georgia volunteers who are out there because there's already uh, Georgians, including Mayor Bottoms, who, who have been to Iowa to stump for their favorite candidates. And, and also just people who – there's a lot of political tourists who just want to catch the, the candidates first – firsthand because it'll be a lot harder to do that come come March. Yeah, I, I really think it's fair to say that covering the Iowa caucuses and then being in New Hampshire, those two particularly are just about as much fun as you can have as a political journalist, as, a, as, a political as well as the political tourists you're talking about. Cody, of course, uh, we're going to get to a break, but on the other side, we don't have to worry about things like caucuses or primaries because uh, so many states have decided they won't even have a Republican primary because Donald Trump is their man. We have not made that call in Georgia yet. Have, have they close made to close it. to they, it? They've canceled. They've only said a few names are going to be on the ballot, but um, but it's going to be Donald Trump and some very lesser known figures. Okay, not, that, not, yeah. that's okay, but it isn't. There will be a place you can vote, right? That's my understanding. All right, go ahead. Well, real we quick. and uh, I know um, I'm on the exact uh, the executive committee of the state party here in Georgia, too. And we have just had a couple different votes this past week. Uh, The people who dropped out, taking them off our ballots. All right. We've got to uh, get to our final break of the show. We'll be back after these messages. During the break, Greg Bluestein reminded himself he wrote an article about (laughs) the fact 
that what about the Republican vote? That I'm wrong, that only one Republican will be on that ballot in March 24th, and that's President Trump. Well, so, at least they didn't cancel it, Greg, like South Carolina it, and other states. It, it'll, it'll look like a, uh, I don't know, a dictator's ballot with just <laughs> one name on the ballot. All right. Uh, Amir, we've only got a few minutes left, but I, I was um, taken by uh, your comments last week after um, – the uh, tensions uh, increased with Iran after the targeting of Soleimani, and you're uh, you're an Iranian American, so this uh, something that's very close to your heart. I am. Um, so I'm, I'm actually a, a ninth generation Georgian on my mother's side, and a uh, the son of an Iranian immigrant on my father's side. I like to say that I, I'm one of the few Georgians who grew up eating grits on a Persian rug and finding an, <laughs> finding an Easter egg behind a hookah. Uh, but I, I'm one of a handful of Iranian-American elected officials around the country, and I, I think there was a lot of um, unease amongst Iranian-Americans last week uh, because of the escalating tensions um, that, not to get too partisan, I think were largely unnecessary. History will tell us one way or the other if that's true or not. Uh, but I, I think it was important for me to speak up, um, even though every morning I wake up thinking about broken sidewalks and noisy bars and how we manage our growth. Uh, but really to say, look, I mean, th this is a problem that's going to be solved by diplomacy, multilateral action, co uh, conferring with Congress. Um, and at the time when I issued the statement, um, it was before Iran's, or excuse me, Iran's retaliatory strike, which signaled de-escalation was probably the proper path that both sides chose to take, which is good for our country. But I, I, um, I, I think now is a terrific opportunity for President Trump to Reengage diplomatically. Uh, he probably wants to model some sort of agreement and under his own name. I think we had a pretty decent uh, nuclear pact with Iran uh, that was being adhered to by the Iranians. Uh, but now's it now's a, ch a chance for us, I think, to really uh, engage diplomatically with our with our partners to try and create a framework in the Middle East that serves our interests best. It, does your father still have? Is there family back in Iran that you are in touch with? Yeah, so I have uh, a number of aunts uh, uh, and uncle, countless cousins. Uh, they're all they're all there, and they are like most Iranians. I mean, the strike is one thing, but the but the uh, sanctions against Iran have created tremendous difficulties for the Iranian people. One of the reasons there's a lot of unsettled feeling about the leadership there. Yeah, if you go back a, a few months ago into last year, uh, there were protests in the street uh, in large part out of frustration with. Uh, the impact the sanctions have had on the economy, gas prices were through the roof, food was expensive, inflation is triple digits. Uh, and so there's a lot of discontent amongst Iranians as to the economic situation that was caused in large part by President Trump's decision to institute pretty harsh sanctions, even allowing, disallowing some of our allies to, uh, from buying oil from, from the Iranians. And so it's created a fairly uh, unstable environment in Iran that this past week has exacerbated for a whole number of reasons that we don't have time to get into today. Yeah. So just one thing I wanted to add, I think I appreciate you um, letting Amir's very personal sure. impact, right, like how, how he feels about it. We so often in these national conversations and international arguments have this very us, them and this otherness kind of thing. And one of the things I just really a longtime fan of Amir's and adore his father and miss his late mother tremendously. But knowing people who are what somebody else wants to call other, really helps. My, and, my, my, and yeah, my wife's line on that is the definition of an enemy is somebody whose story you don't yet know. I love that. We're just about out of time, but Cody, before we end, you've got a big day tomorrow. Let's make sure people know the circumstances. The governor will go to the House at just about 11 o'clock, right? Yes, sir. Yep. 
uh, joint session. The Senate will have been led in. Uh, the Supreme Court justices of the state Supreme Court will have been led in, department heads, uh, other constitutional officers. And then your guy gets announced and he gives his talk. That's right. Should be, if all goes according to plan, between 20 and 25 minutes. And he's been in, in construction his whole life, so you'll hear a lot about building. All right. And we will carry that speech live on GPB Radio. You can also stream it, watch it on GPB News' website. And uh, I'll be here kind of overseeing our coverage of that. We'll also be listening for the Democratic response. They have a news conference at 12.15. We'll talk about all of that on tomorrow's Political Rewind. Thanks for being with us today. See you again tomorrow at 2.00.